I should like to tell you that I have seen some of the experiments shown in this film actually carried out at the All-Russian Physiological Congress. As you can imagine, technique is everything. This is Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. On episode two of the podcast, we talked to Orrin Cass, the author of a new book called The Once and Future Worker. Topics range from economic growth and education to trade and even a little bit of tax policy at the end. Although Jack and I don't agree with Orrin on a number of issues, his main premise that there's more to fostering a healthy economy than what public policy might do to increase economic growth in the short run is important. And I encourage you to go out and buy Orrin's book. And now, our interview with Orrin Cass. So we have Orrin Cass here with us this morning, and Orrin's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and was formerly the director of domestic policy for Mitt Romney and has recently written a book called The Once and Future Worker. Uh, Thanks for being here with us this morning, Orrin. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So something that you write about in your book is that um, it's a kind of a controversial statement in that GDP shouldn't be central in economic policymaking. Uh, can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. I, uh, to be clear, I think GDP is very important, and I think we should celebrate and pursue economic growth. Um, but I think when we, when we treat it as sort of the one metric to rule them all and presume that as long as we are growing GDP, we are succeeding – uh, we miss a lot of, of what matters. Uh, it, it forces an incredibly aggregate view and, and in particular presumes that essentially you can create a lot of winners and losers and a lot of, as long as the winners win more than the losers lose, uh, we're going to be better off. And sometimes that comes with a presumption that we can always redistribute from the winners to the losers uh, whether or not we actually do that or whether we even want to do that are, yeah. are interesting questions we you know, have to look at a little bit more closely. Um, but, but the presumption at the end of the day is that through, through that process, through redistribution if necessary, everyone's con- consumption can rise. Uh, and as long as everyone's consumption is rising, everyone is going to be happy. And I think that's just not quite right. I think we should want people's consumption to rise, but I think people's uh, engagement in production as workers to to sort of stretch the economic pie metaphor to actually be involved in baking the pie is really important too. And so if you don't attend to, in a sense, the question of how widely shared the growth is, who's actually benefiting from the productivity gains, you can end up in a situation, and I think increasingly we see this in America, where you're getting that top-line growth number, you're getting the the high level of GDP, but a significant share of the population is increasingly reliant on transfer payments um, and and not able to achieve self-sufficiency. And when that happens, I think you you end up with uh, some some really serious social problems. You end up with, and frankly, economic problems. You end up with an erosion of family, of community, of opportunity for the next generation, uh, and so I think we actually have to attend not just to that top-line GDP number, uh, but in particular, I'd, I'd like us to focus on the labor market and make sure that, that we're ensuring and pursuing policies that help ensure uh, that the labor market actually remains healthy from the top to the bottom, whether you're a highly skilled college graduate uh, in a big city uh, or someone with only a high school degree 
uh, in the middle of the country. So would you say that the that there's been an overemphasis on material outcomes and not just GDP? Well, uh, implicit in focus on GDP is material outcomes. I mean, when you say why why is this what we're measuring? The idea is that material living standards are are the name of the game. And again, I think material we like higher living standards. We should want material living standards to rise. Um, but I think if if we just presume that as long as material living standards are rising, everything will be good, um, I, I think that assumes too much. Orrin, in your answer there, you put forth a lot of different ideas, I think a lot of which deserve unpacking. Um, I'd like to start with this notion of GDP and whether or not that's the one statistic we should be looking at. I agree with your skepticism of that. The problem I have, though, is that too often people will take um, a skepticism of using GDP to then focus on some other single, single statistics. You were very careful in how you talked about it, that GDP is important among many different statistics that should be relied right. upon. One of the things that I find um, troubling or whatever is um, when policymakers start trying to enact economic policy in order to achieve a certain statistic that they want. So my question for you in looking at this GDP thing, um, how do you get around that? How, how do you um, How do you empower the policymakers to look at the spectrum of statistics is as they're making GD or as they're making policy. Well, I, I think a starting point is to step back and, and try to do a better job of defining what, what it is we think the goal is. Um, I think a lot of the, the reason that we focus so much on GDP is that we have this idea that GDP is sort of is, is the foundation of other things that if we get the GDP growth, the other good things we want will follow. Um, and so a core part of my argument is is to sort of flip that on its head and say, actually, that, 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 that's not even really the way to understand growth. Uh, sort of economic growth isn't just a function of the top marginal tax rate. Economic growth is something that emerges, in a sense, from a healthy, vital, robust society. And so if it's, if it's that healthy society that is, is really what we're trying to achieve here um, – then that sort of allows us to widen the lens and, and allows us to look at any given policy and say, okay, what is this policy actually changing? On, on what basis do we think this policy is an improvement? Because, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, no policy is going to be perfect. Any policy is going to have pros and cons, you know. And so I think the best way to evaluate policy is to ask if at any point in time, are we moving in the right direction? So, Have so we then, made an improvement? So what is the principle then that policymakers should adhere to as they're looking at economic policy? Well, so I think they should focus on the labor market. I think they should focus on um, essentially the, the series of opportunities the labor market is generating for people to find and do work. And the labor market as a market behaves like a market. I mean, there we can talk about some of the ways it's very unique because the thing in the labor market are people, not products. Um, but the same forces we expect to act on a market are going to act on the labor market, which means, you know, what, what sort of demand is there in the labor market? What kind of investments are being made that in the economy that create business demand for labor? Uh, from the supply side, what kinds of policies are affecting who wants to work, what work they're capable of doing? Um, 
you know, one thing that I think is really important to think about is is what is the boundary drawn around the market? Who's participating in the market and on what terms? Um, and so as we talk about public policy, instead of just asking, well, is this, you know, do we expect this policy to be better or worse for GDP growth next quarter? I think it's a lot more constructive to look at policy and ask, well, do we expect them to be improving or weakening the, the labor market's trajectory over time? Why don't we look at a policy and just ask, does it expand economic freedom? Um, what's wrong with that being a principle? And un- if you look at it as whether or not it expands economic freedom, one could conclude that economic freedom is the best way to expand GDP, to expand a strong labor market, to do all those things by having a principle that you're trying to achieve rather than a statistic that you're trying to achieve. You guard against politicians injecting parochialism and all the different distortions that that they often do. That leads to bad economic Just outcomes. Chasing a number, mm-hmm. Just, yeah. Well, I I like economic freedom. I'm not sure how well it it allows us to evaluate a lot of policies. So, like. Do public schools advance economic freedom? Are public schools an economic policy? Well, you just asked. I, I think the question is, how do you evaluate policy? I mean, I guess if if we talk about the range of policies that I would say uh, affect the labor market, I would say environmental policy and other regulatory policies do, education policies do, trade and immigration policies do, labor policies do, safety net policies do. Uh, so... I don't know how we would define any of those. All mm-hmm. of those affect outcomes in the economy. I think education policy certainly affects outcomes in the po- in the economy. I'm not sure what what would count as a policy that is economic or not, or to the extent that I guess I would ask you if if that's the set of policies we're talking about, does the economic freedom litmus test apply to them or not? I think in many cases they do, not in all cases. So education, for example, I think that there is an approach to education that probably is consistent with an economic freedom mindset, one that's focused on um, choice. You know, what you write about in your book, tracking, I think is, a, um, is an interesting issue to get into. I think that the, what you identify as the problem, that we've created this system that overemphasizes one outcome, a university education, versus all the other outcomes, is a big problem. I think where I disagree with you is that, if I understand what you're writing correctly, you're asking young students to choose a track early on that leads to an to to a specific outcome. And I know j- just me personally, I think you as well, we, we discussed you have so many career options that your career choices you make over time. So I think there's a balance to make that is choice-based um, that leaves out um, this uh, this outside pressure on students to to do something and rather leave it to them and their parents to determine sort of what is the best outcome for them. Sure. I, I don't know how far the... I, I think choice in education is very important. But, for instance, if we're going to spend money on education, we're going to have to collect taxes to do it. So is imposing a tax to fund public education pro-economic freedom or anti-economic freedom? I just This is why I say that just the economic freedom question doesn't get us that far. I think even... Um, you know, when we talk more broadly and, and, and zoom more into uh, really you know, something I'd say more quarter to economic policy, um, like is patent law pro-economic freedom or anti-economic freedom? That's, that's not a rhetorical question. Yeah. Do, do, do you like that we have patents, even though they, 
you know, constrain free market transactions, raise prices to consumers, and so forth. I think that patent law, um, there's a, there's certainly a role for patents. I, but I agree with you that um, it can restrict some economic freedom. I think that it falls into a property rights issue. Sure. That, so then, um, so so property you, rights is one of the pillars of um, of a economically free society. I would there's, think. And there's right? also a, there's also a role for education, right? So education or having a educated uh, population is important for self-government, and if and if that doesn't exist, right, then that can that can regress economic freedom or not support economic freedom in some ways. At the same time, there's clearly diminishing marginal returns to education within that regard, right? I mean, so not everyone has to have a PhD in economics in order to promote a free society. Right. So, well, so I, so this, I think, is a really interesting example, though, where you essentially start to set up these, these chains or linkages where you say, well, really, if we want to achieve high levels of economic freedom, one thing we need to be attendant to is, is our capacity for self-government. Mm-hmm. If we care about our capacity for self-government, we need to be attendant to things like education. And, and so pretty soon, you know, I would argue we really need to be attendant to, for instance, the health of our local communities, mm-hmm. the families that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that are raising kids. So, Okay, well, now if, if being for economic freedom means we need to be attendant to the conditions in which families form and, and kids are raised, um, well, now I think this is exactly the conversation to have, but which policy is therefore yeah. more or less ultimately attuned to economic freedom, um, I think becomes, I think it's great, it becomes a much more interesting question. But I, I do want to pursue the, the patent thing a little bit. It, it's, it's, it's something I talk about. A, a fair amount in the book because I think it's such an, an interesting example. I, I agree completely that the it's it's a question of property rights, um, but at the same time, it's tech, it's a question of what we define as a property right. So it's a little bit circular to say, well, because we've defined patents as a property right, it is therefore a matter of economic freedom. When the question is, well, what counts as as a patentable? Uh, idea and that therefore deserves that protection. And, and then especially when, when we move into the international context where you say, okay, well, so for instance, obviously more free trade would be the economic freedom stance, I assume. But what do you do when the counterparty to the free trade doesn't respect patents? Does that now all of a sudden, so which policy is more economic freedom oriented? Mm -hmm. Is it saying we're going to support the free trade, even if the other side isn't respecting the property right? Or do we say, no, economic freedom means actually constraining trade to those who are respecting property rights? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's actually a really important point. I mean, the, one of the ways that Adam Smith wrote about and thought about trade was that it had to be reciprocal, which means that you had to have equal trading partners who respected one another. And you also had to have trading partners who were uh, uh, both able to persuade each other of the of their own uh, wants and desires, uh, but also to internalize the wants and desires of of the other person. And when that doesn't exist, when those when that basic foundation doesn't exist, uh, it's hard it's hard to have trade, right? Uh, it's it's definitely hard to have free trade. Um, it, it, it's something else. There's definitely an exchange that's going on between those entities or there, an exchange can be present between those, uh, between those entities, but it's difficult to support a healthy economic system. So I think I agree with you. I mean, that's a big question to, to, to consider. I think as it relates to 
say China and a respect or lack thereof for patents, what we need to ask ourselves is what are what is the larger regime governing the interaction? Is patent uh, law part of that? And if it is, um, we need to use whatever mechanisms are in place to enforce that. And if those mechanisms for that specific problem are used and don't achieve the the, the result that's supposed to be arbitrated through that, that, that system, then you move on to other mechanisms to try to enforce that. Um, if the regime doesn't include, say, patent, um, respect for patent law, then we, you need to strengthen the regimes to do that. I think my, um, my a critique of this country X isn't, respo isn't uh, respecting patent law, therefore that's not trading with them or that's great tariffs. The country may or may not start with a C. It may or may not start with a C and end with an A. Um, Canada. Canada. <laughs> Specifically Canada, you know, as the makers of South Park will, will tell us is, is a threat. Um, yeah, I just want to go through the steps. I want to try to, to go through the steps of trying to enforce those rules, understand what the specific issue is, and try to resolve that issue rather than broad tariffs, which ultimately hurt. American consumers and businesses, I think. Oh, I agree that broad tariffs aren't necessarily the ideal mechanism. I think the, you know, the question is, and if you think about, let's take WTO as an example. Okay, we're going to go through the WTO process and seek enforcement of our rights. The remedy at the end of the WTO process, if you win, is to impose a tariff. So in many ways, when, when you think about kind of the, the construct of free trade generally, there, there are sort of two forms of the argument, I would say. One is we literally don't care what China does. And, you know, a, a lot of folks who, who I would say adhere most strongly to the economic freedom position say either, A, we don't care what China does. It benefit, if, if China wants to, to distort their markets, subsidize their producers, um, foreclose access to their market to our producers, doesn't matter – at the end of the day, economic freedom means I have the right to buy from whoever I want, and if I can get something cheaper from China, we should allow that transaction. And if and, and all that cheap stuff coming from China, even if it erodes our industrial base, um, the cheap stuff is good for consumers, and we should be happy. So that that's the strong form. And and do you reject that? I reject that. Do you reject that? Um, I reject the way the question is posed, I think. So I don't think it's that clear. I think that um, in any trading relationship, uh, first of all, it's not countries trading with each other. It's people, though I admit in China, a lot of the people are, are dictated to by the government. Um, I think that access to Chinese goods, I don't know that it's so clear that it erodes our industrial base through unfair trade practices. I think in many cases, access to Chinese goods gives our industry um, the access to more inexpensive, so long as they are good quality intermediate goods, makes us more competitive in many cases. So my, I don't think that it's as clear to say um, one is cause is causation for the other. I think that we need to look at the broader relationships and see if people aren't playing fair and then go after those things specifically. So, but the question is, let's say it were having that effect. Would you care? In other words, the, the strong form of the free trade argument 
says it essentially does not matter where things get made. And so even if it is the case... I think all things equal, it doesn't matter necessarily where things get made. All things equal, necessarily. Well, what... What are the exceptions to that? I mean, this is right. This is exactly why just saying economic freedom answers our questions isn't sufficient. Because, but I, the original question I posed was not whether or not economic freedom should be the metric against we against what we measure economic policy or policy. I think is what what we were talking about. But rather, is the is there a principle that we should pursue rather than a statistic? That's my bigger concern. I am pro economic freedom, and I am. Um, but I'm not absolutist in anything. I, here's, here's the way I look at it. We want a robust labor market. We want a robust economy. Um, we want strong families. We want a strong middle class. We want all of these things. What's the best way to do it? And um, I think I agree with you, certainly in, in what we've talked about and in what I've read of, of, of your writing, that um, free market is generally good. Not ge- free market is good. And um, it produces most of these things. And so the, the, the question then is, how does policy interact with that? And, and, and um, yeah, how does policy interact with that? And what are the best policies to get there? My original thing, we ta- started talking about GDP, is should we be focusing on a statistic, GDP or otherwise? It's really two things, right? It's not just what policies help you achieve the outcome, but what is what is the outcome? How do you know that ultimately you will have succeeded? And I think one of the comments that Oren made earlier is, is it's hard to know whether or not you've succeeded if if what your outcome is is a, is a principle. At the same time, having a metric that you're chasing has its own has its own problems, right? I mean that's one of the big problems with GDP. If GDP is the mes- is the is the metric, the metric to rule them all within regards to how we evaluate economic policy well, I mean, then, then basically that, that leads to a policy environment where we're foregoing certain things that in the long run might help the economy in exchange for things that in the short run boost GDP, mm-hmm. which, is a, which I think everybody would agree is a big problem. Right? Yeah, I, you know, I think it, it's very interesting, this question of sort of, do you pursue a metric? Do you apply a principle? I think metrics and principles are both, in, you know, Those are sort of the building blocks of our policy debates, but it's important to recognize that there's more than one metric that we're trying to Mm -hmm. – we want to keep in mind. Uh, And there's more than one principle that we want to keep in mind, that if if we sort of have a a single litmus test, whether it's economic freedom or anything else, we quickly – and I think, Paul, your example is a very good one – we quickly realize that it's more complex than that. And so what I think we end up just finding is that we actually, in a sense, need a, need a conception of, of, you know, it's very cliche to say sort of what is the good life, but we need a conception of what we think a, a healthy society looks like. Um, and so, for instance, and, and, and I think it's important to clarify here, that doesn't mean we can then ask government to go set up pick a set of policies that is going to deliver that because that is not plausible. But it does mean when we are evaluating policies that we have to make choices about regardless, we have to have an education policy. We're going to have a safety net of some sort. We're going to, you know, have environmental regulation. Um, 
we, we need to have trade policies, immigration policies. So once we agree we government is going to have to act in some way in all of these areas, and we're not just going to pick based on a single principle or based on a single metric, um, then we're sort of kind of ready to, to, to dig in and figure out, um, again, recognizing that no policy is going to be perfect, which, which choices we want to make in areas where we have no choice but to choose, in a sense. And so what, what I really want to advance into the discussion is this idea that the, the right lens to apply to these things is absolutely to recognize, you know, GDP growth, and particularly what drives GDP growth, which is productivity growth. That's, that's a core thing we need to be focusing on. We need policies. And one of the biggest problems we have right now and have had for a long time is we are not getting productivity growth. So one thing to recognize is like, you know, maybe the set of policies that we thought were going to yield the most productivity growth aren't actually, that's not the equation that's going to yield the most productivity growth. Um, but then to put back into the conversation this idea that, you know, you can't just have a one-step chain from policy to GDP growth. That's not the right way to do it. Um, it is, it's much more useful to think about the actual social conditions that we want to have in the society. And to start with something as simple, you know, simple as family, as simple as marriage, to say, you know, actually we think people getting married and forming stable families, that's that's actually core. And policies that enable and facilitate and make that easier to happen um, are preferable to ones that that make those things less likely to happen. So for things like marriage, are you, do you, do you support policies that, um, bias for marriage or do you look at the policy world as there being things that bias against marriage and you want to remove those and assume that the, the, the goodness of marriage will propel us to do right, more right of now. That? There's a, there's an argument. One of the critiques that the conservative world makes or conservative analysts make is that there are many programs that the federal government administers that uh, have implicit biases against marriage. They have marriage penalties. Uh, for instance, this is what our co- one of our colleagues, Robert Rector, has criticized in the past the ITC program, Earned Income Tax Credit, for having a implicit bias against against marriage. So, yeah. Right. And so, so I think that's absolutely a starting point is, do we have programs that are biased against marriage? That's that's probably a mistake. Now, there could be some other reason that you have to do it that way that, you know, again, you can't have a single principle, but that's something we should certainly be attentive to. I'm 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 mostly skeptical of programs that try to sort of explicitly encourage marriage. Like we're going to go out there and do marriage promotion. I don't think frankly the track record is, you know, a lot of those things have been tried. I don't think the track record is very good. Um but I think it's really important to understand what are the forces in the society that facilitate or interfere with something like the formation of stable families. Um, and so this then kind of leads back into the, into the economic policy discussion, which is, you know, at least in my view, and, and I think most of the, the research backs this up, you know, men in particular being able to find work that's going to allow them to support a family is really important to the marriage forming in the first place, um, and and to the to the family remaining stable in the long run. So, um, as you're kind of evaluating the options for you know 
what delivers GDP growth, it I think it's the case that not all GDP growth is created equal. That growth and, and economic progress of a form that still ensures that 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 kind of work is going to be available is really important. Um, and so again, that's that is not in and of itself determinative, but it's something that needs to be in the equation when we evaluate. Um, what we think economic success and and a and a robust economy looks like. So, what are those policies? How do we do that? Well, so so this is then the labor market discussion. How do we foster a robust labor market um, that's going to be robust, in particular, at the bottom end for folks with with lower skill levels and, and lower wages? Um, and I I think the places to start are first of all by understanding where those kinds of jobs emerge from in the economy what are the way, what are the ways in which particularly less educated men can be most productive um, and a lot of that typically turns out to be in the physical economy i mean it, it sort of makes sense even just from a comparative advantage perspective um, that that physical work is going to be the place where a lot of men can be most productive um, and in fact where their wages are highest in the economy are in industries like construction, manufacturing, resource extraction. Um, unfortunately, we have taken a, an approach to uh, to regulation in this economy that says we're going to make those things as costly and risky uh, and low return as possible, and we're going to make tech and finance as attractive uh, as possible by, by contrast. And, and when we do regulation, we explicitly say we're not going to consider the cost to jobs. When EPA does a cost-benefit analysis, it does not consider the effect on jobs because it's only thinking about consumer welfare. So putting that back in and saying, you know what, at the margin, higher levels of, of pollution, for instance, but that mean a more robust industrial economy uh, are a lot more valuable than we've treated them as, uh, and so I think we've we've gone to we've overcorrected in that respect, and and need to give more credit to to wanting a robust industrial economy. I mean, and that's certainly the case given the low levels of pollution that are generally out there now. This move to um, to eliminate all pollution without any health or environmental benefit, especially at the cost of all the jobs, is really ridiculous. Right, and so and and, and so I think again we can. We can say, look, you know, environmental regulation has done a lot of good. I mean, if you go back to 1970 and look at the air quality we had when we created the EPA, when we passed the Clean Air Act, we had very serious air quality problems in this country. Um, and, and taking action to reduce pollution levels made a lot of sense, even at some economic cost. But because of the way we structured those laws, because of the way we've evaluated them, we've allowed the pendulum to swing wildly in the other direction – um, and, and we need to be more attentive of, of the cost that that has created. So, so that's one example is, is saying actually the, the robust industrial economy, being able to do infrastructure, being able to build plants, these things really matter actually. Um, we've talked a little bit about education and this idea that, that from the supply side of the economy, um, we have, you know, slightly under half of, of young American, Americans are in even a community college degree. So most don't. Um, and yet we have this college for all system that invests in just incredible resources in trying to get people through college. And then, you know, th those folks, in a sense, we think of as the economic winners. Uh, and we invest nothing in, in the other half. 
uh, and then sort of tut-tut employers that they're not investing in training themselves. Uh, and, and, and I think that's backward. I think it's, it's the, the, the less educated half of the population in the part of the labor market that's struggling, where we should be focusing our resources and where we should be finding a way to, um, build a pathway that actually gets you, you know, my target is always, how do you get to some, you know, how do you get someone to age 20 with job experience and industry credential earnings already in the bank and a job, um, and that's perfectly doable if, if instead of pushing them as far into college as possible and then abandoning them, you said, by the time someone's 16 or 17, they can, they can, they can choose to be on that track if they want. Um, and so this is, you know, this is an interesting question where you say, well, what's the role for government policy? Integrating employers with the education system is a really hard thing to do. Um, you know, by nature, I think employers are hesitant to, to get involved with the education system and school systems are hesitant to have employers involved. But again, we, we already have government policy here. We are, we are running public schools. So having a conversation of how do you get employers involved in that, I think is a really important conversation to have. Uh, it's going to require new and different policy. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think it's going to require some funding and I would like to take the funding that we currently lavish on the college kids and put it in this direction instead. Um, so that's sort of you know how we talk about the supply and the demand side of the labor market. And, and it's important to recognize that there's, there's sort of a, a symbiotic effect, which is that if we were preparing more young people without college degrees to be productive workers with skills ready to enter the economy, you would also make it more attractive to build businesses and invest in the kinds of activity that would use those workers. Um, so, so I think those are really important. And then this, this idea of how you draw a border around the labor market, I think is really important. And this gets into the trade discussion that we were just having. You know, I think in theory, very high levels of trade are, are great. You know, trade allows firms to specialize. It gives you bigger scale. It allows for technology spillovers. What's a real problem is imbalanced trade, is the dynamic we have where, and, and technically it's a global, it's, it's our relationship with the whole rest of the world, but in practice you can talk about it just with China. China sends us massive amount of st- amounts of stuff, and, but they don't buy anything back from us in return. Technically they, they take assets back instead. Um, and that's great for consumers, but it's not good for workers. It's, it is not good for the labor market. It is introducing a ton of new supply into the labor market, essentially Chinese workers who can supply our market with no commensurate increase in demand in our market, other people who want what our workers do. And that's a real problem. Um, so I go, I go on with lots more policies, but I think those are sort of some of the concrete examples of how if you're taking this labor market focus – you start to pick policies that are very different from the ones that we have typically pursued when just whatever delivers the highest consumer welfare and GDP growth is is per se the right policy. Could you argue that if China is taking some of those assets and they're converting them into treasury securities, uh, the ownership of those treasury securities by China and not by U.S. citizens or U.S. banks uh, frees up liquidity in the U.S. to invest domestically. Yeah, so it's absolutely true that that if 
sending back assets in lieu of goods is another way of saying savings and investment is flowing into the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's important to to specify it's not that they would convert assets into treasuries. The the way to to think about it is you know we call it trade for a reason. There has mm-hmm. to be a trade, and so if if we're importing five hundred billion dollars of stuff from China, we do in fact have to give China five hundred billion back. Mm-hmm. If it's not goods and services, it's assets. It's cash, yeah. It could be cash in the short run, but that cash doesn't do them any good mm-hmm. unless they can buy something with it. Mm-hmm. So if they're not buying stuff, they're going to buy assets. They're not going to hold it in cash. Well, they can also buy debt. It's kind of my, that's, that's, that's one of right. my so points. Debt, they, so, they can buy right, treasury securities. Right, so debt is an asset. It's right. a liability for us. It's an asset for right. the holder. So if, you, if that's what they do, then what you step back and say at the end of the day, okay, China sent us a lot of stuff. And we sent back treasuries. Now, what is a treasury? A treasury is literally an IOU, right? So what we have, we have established a trading relationship where they send us stuff in return for which we send them pieces of paper saying we will pay you later for the stuff, right? The, the, the treasury has to be repaid. Yep, yep yeah. So, so that relationship I would describe as an incredibly unhealthy one, um, both for at the scale of the national economy um, and for the workers within the economy. Now, it's important to note, at this point, it's not actually as much treasuries that China's accumulating as assets. I mean, so now we're sending back equities in our companies, real estate, corporate debt. Um, We're essentially, it's like the person who sort of sells parts of their body instead of of the the things they're producing. and you're right, if we, had a, if we had a shortage of savings here in this country, we might need that savings and investment. The reality is interest rates in this country are incredibly low mm-hmm. and have been for a very long time. Um, if anything, I think most economists would agree that, that part of what fueled, for instance, the housing bubble was the excess in cheap credit available to this country facilitated in part by the trade deficit. So uh, if there were a shortage of of savings in this country available to finance investment in this country and interest rates were skyrocketing, that would be a very interesting problem. But I don't think it's a description at all of what we actually have going on. Uh, actually, I, I disagree with a, with a portion of that. I, I, you know, if you look at personal savings rates over time, uh, they were around basically 10 to 13 percent uh, from the end of World War II until about the, well, the middle of the 1970s. And then they started falling, right? Uh, they reached their trough around 2005, 2006, just before the Great Recession at around 2%. So again, they fell from about 10% to about 2%. And now they've come back up a little bit. I mean, now now they're hovering around 6 7 7%. Uh, you see a similar trend in our aggregate savings rates. So savings is down, right? While at the same time, government spending is, I mean, pri- primary deficits are, are growing, 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 right? I mean, debt is as high as it's ever been. Uh, it's over $20 trillion now. And uh, ultimately, it seems like one of the major problems that, that we have at a macro level is that our minuscule savings rates are all going into buying government debt, right? Either people, as either individuals purchasing government securities or banks purchasing government securities because they're a rel- relatively safe asset to use as, uh, to use as reserves, right? 
And so I think we do have an investment problem. I actually think that this is one of the uh, one of the repercussions that, that that has come out of the uh, enactment of the TCGA or the criticism of the enactment of the TCGA. That was the tax reform bill that was signed by President Trump at the beginning of uh, or end of 2017, beginning of 2018, and that we really haven't seen an increase in investment. Yeah, we haven't seen an increase in investment in part because our baseline is so low, right? Our baseline savings rates are so low. So low. You know, compare that to, say, Japan, right? So personal savings rates in Japan are in, in the 20s, okay, which, which means that they can, they can have an economy that, that both seems to hum along okay while still running, you know, major primary deficits. The, the, the debt as a percentage of the economy and GDP even surpasses what we, what we have in the U.S. So I actually see this as, as a bit of a problem, and, 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 and that's why and, and, and I, I what I agree with you about is I, 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 I the Chinese are they're not buying as much government debt as I think the median voter might think. Uh, we still hold most of our assets at the same time the, the, the uh, when when foreign entities buy U.S. debt that does act to free up investment in the U.S. for domestic savers. Which I see is a which I do see is a real asset, and you've got to balance both sides of uh, both sides of the sheet there. Um, where I agree with you is that it does matter what the what the uh, Chinese and what other uh, what other uh, companies and other countries are doing ultimately with that trade imbalance, right? It does it does matter with what they're investing in because that does come back and hit us in some way. It may on net be a good thing. I mean, that's an empirical question. Or it may on net be a bad thing. Um, but ultimately, the, the, the pathway does, does matter. Right. And, well, and I think it's a great point. I mean, all of the, these things are all fungible in a sense. Right. So who's holding what is, is less important to the balances. Um, you know, I do think, again, at the end of the day, the, the measure of all of this is interest rates. If we had a shortage of, of capital available for investment in this country, interest rates would be going up um, and, you know, would, would be high. Um, and conversely, when you look at, you know, one of the, the criticisms of what's happening in, in the aftermath of the TCGA is you have these massive stock buybacks, um, which are, if anything, a sign that, like, firms don't when firms suddenly have more capital, they're not really sure what to do with it in a lot of cases. Um, I do agree that, you know, the trade deficit to a large extent, therefore, enables us to run a government deficit Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I don't think that's a good thing. I mean, I think part and parcel of this discussion would be we're going to have to get our our own deficit, our budget deficit under control. Um, but, But again, I think that sort of cuts in the same direction. That is, if if the if the totally unconstrained trade policy from our side combined with very strategic controlled policy from the chinese side is yielding an outcome where we run massive trade deficits that are bad for our workers and that particularly erode our strength in strategically important industries and <laughs> support the the growth of an ever larger budget deficit at the same time I think that that runs completely contrary to any conception of economic freedom that that we should be enthusiastic about, and we should look at that and say that has to change. That's not a model that's going to work, and it's certainly not something we should sort of support as 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 good for America in the long run. Yeah. 
so h- how much do you see the stock buybacks and the minuscule investment coming out of the enactment of the TCGA as a symptom of, um, it's a way to put this, but basically policy uncertainty, right? There is actually a fair amount of policy uncertainty in the world. I mean, look at what's going on with our closest European neighbor right now with Brexit, right? We really don't know what the end game here is. And one of the things that you're seeing in the, the UK, for instance, is that private uh, non-financial institutions are just sitting on their cash, right? They're building up all of these reserves. At some point, that will be, that will be freed up, right? So h- how much does uncertainty come into the equation? And, um, and if it does come into the equation, what can we do to resolve it? It's a great question. I mean, I I think uncertainty is a factor. I don't know that an uncertainty is high, has suddenly gotten higher. Yeah. Um, and I also look at the decline in business investment as what I believe has been a fairly long run secular trend in declining business investment, particularly sort of as a share of whatever economic measure right. you'd use for this country. Um, And so while I think at the margin, less uncertainty would be better for investment, I don't think the the explanation for the long-run decline in in business investment is some long-run increase in uncertainty. Um, I think it's a fascinating, one of the most important questions for economists and policymakers to grapple with, what has happened to business investment? Mm Um, you know, whether you're talking about, and this goes back to this demand side of the labor market, you know, why is it that we are not building stuff in a sense? Why are we not expanding operations, employing more people, increasing their productivity? Um, you know, one of the things that I find most... What's, what's happened to business investment and what's happened to personal savings, both of which have come down. Right. Yes, I mean, that's, that's right. Personal, the, yeah. personal savings have, have come down, but again, interest rates remained low. Mm-hmm. So, as a business, a business doesn't care that sa- that the personal savings rate is low. The mm-hmm. business cares what the interest rate is at which it can access capital. Mm-hmm. And businesses have had access to cheap and increase. I mean, if you, you, know, you go all the way back to the early '80s with you know what Volcker was doing, like ever since then, just ever cheaper capital in a sense. Um, but and yet. Uh, that's not producing the the sorts of investment levels we would have seen historically. And and I think the, you know, one way to, to see this that I find fascinating is we have this idea that somehow kind of manufacturing employment has declined because of automation. Um, and technically what we mean when we say that is productivity has increased over time. So you need fewer workers to make the same amount of stuff that you used to make. Well, that's always been the case. Productivity growth was as high or higher in the 50s, 60s, 70s than it was in the 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Um, so you could equally well have said automation – sorry, I'm, you, your listeners can't see. I'm putting scare quotes around automation um, – was destroying just as many jobs in the 50s, 60s, 70s as it has been in recent decades – What's changed isn't the rate of automation or productivity growth. What's changed is that output growth used to go up too. So if you think of like 10 workers make 10 widgets, thanks to productivity growth, each worker can now make two widgets instead of one. Historically, you would have therefore said, that's great. Now we can make 20 widgets, right? We're, we're going to have as many workers before and we're going to make twice as much stuff. 
And what's shifted in recent decades is that we've instead said, well, that's great. Now we only need five workers to make the 10 widgets. We've continued to, to grow productivity to automate at the same rate as historically, but output stopped growing. If output had kept growing at the historical rate, we would actually employ more manufacturing workers now than we had in 2000, even with all the automation and productivity growth. So whether you're talking, and, and manufacturers is a concrete example, it, this, this applies more broadly. Um, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how we've increasingly sort of built an economy in which the, the returns are to how do you generate as much growth and profit quickly with as little capital and labor as possible in tech and finance, not how do you actually build large enterprises that employ lots of people productively. Well, part, part of this is just the, the changing nature of what's driving the growth, which again gets back to your principal hypothesis, right? So the big difference between, or a big difference between the second industrial revolution, which really peaked in the 1970s, and the third industrial revolution that was brought with computers and automation and things like this, is that the first industrial revolution marked by you know, the automobile industry and and combustion engines and things like this was labor intensive, right? The third industrial revolution and the, and the companies that came out of it are not labor intensive. So if you just think about, you know, so, uh, 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 GM general motors, right? General motors was employing 500,000 people at its peak and sort of the heart of the, of the second industrial revolution. Google employs a lot of people, but you know, not half a million people, right? And it also employs those people all over the place, all around the globe, right? They've got centers in London, they've got centers in Paris, Madrid, and so on and so forth. Some of that is to take advantage of immigration laws or restrictions on immigration laws that have made it harder to get high-skilled people into this country and keep them here. Um, but it, but it also is just based on the the the, the evolution of the world economy. It is now easier to uh, to be a member of, of the same company in another country as it was, you know, 50 or 60, 70 years ago. Right. I, you know, the, the interesting thing, though, I agree with everything you just said with the caveat that Google makes massive capital investments. I mean, data, the amount of equipment in a Google data center is, is, is truly extraordinary. You know, Apple, at the end of the day, is a hardware manufacturer. Um, the when you look at the the stuff that when when you look at the stuff that people buy as they become wealthier for instance and we can look we can see what are the people at the 90th percentile today consuming it's not like it's all digital downloads and yoga classes okay people just as much double their consumption of clothing furniture bigger houses more cars um, we actually increase our material consumption and even the digital stuff that we consume has a a physical underlay, say with medical devices, pharmaceuticals and everything. Um, and so, so even the third industrial revolution in theory is coming with the need for massive amounts of labor of every type. One of the things that globalization has enabled thanks to special, you know, specialization comparative advantage is to say, well, we'll just do the knowledge work here and all the, the labor intensive work will be done somewhere else. Um, and, Sorry, I keep saying this again from a consumer welfare perspective. That's terrific. That makes sure everything is cheap as it can possibly be. Uh, central to my argument is that 
that can't be the end of analysis, the analysis that ultimately, even if you're, even if your stated objective is economic freedom, when you go down that chain to say economic freedom requires a healthy self-governing society, requires strong families and communities, you can't accept a model that says, uh, we are just going to allow the economy to evolve in a way where the labor market falls apart would be too strong, but is really in long-term decline for a significant share of the population. The, <clears throat> doesn't that... I I agree with you. So my questions aren't meant to be like, I know better or anything like that. I agree with you. I, what I'm trying questions, by the way. What I'm trying to understand, though, is how does the government intervention get us there? Because to me, every time the government intervenes... It leads to these rippling effects that compound over time and lead you to a worse place. And when I read your book, you bring up so many things that I agree with completely. The, the, and, and what you point out are the biases against these outcomes that you want. My view is if you remove the biases and then allow the economy to evolve, you should get to where you want to be too quickly, especially, frankly, for people who I know have read your book, they conclude it's not about removing the biases, but applying additional biases that try to achieve some outcome. And that's where I think the policy debate needs to go. When I look at your book, and you talk about environmental regulation, which we already talked about, yeah, get rid of it or or recalibrate it. Mm -hmm. You talk about labor market regulation that that is detrimental. You talk about the biases in the education system that puts everyone towards some uh, some conception of social acceptance of what is a the right education. We need to get rid of these things, and then I think we get to where we want to go, especially if we have a strong civil society mm-hmm. that starts to um, create the uh, the expectations amongst in society uh, of, of the strength of families and, and all of these kinds of things. But that's not something government can get into either, because as soon as government does it, you start get weird things happening. And so if we have a strong civil society promoting what, for lack of a better um, phrase, is maybe Judeo-Christian values, traditional American values, with a um, expelling the policy biases, doesn't that get you to where you want to be? It's exactly the right question. I mean, I think the, the way you just described it is exactly what 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 I'm trying to achieve and, and, and the conversation I hope we generally, especially right of center, can move to, which is to say, look, to agree that that there are problems, that 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 things have been happening in the economy that are maybe not ideal, that we need to have a more sophisticated view of what it is we're trying to accomplish um, and what success looks like. None of that necessitates a specific policy choice. That, I think, is a much better context in which to have the policy debate. Um, and that's why, you know, all this conceptual stuff is part one of the book. And then part two is, all right, let's talk about a whole bunch of policy issues. And here's how I think they look different through this lens. But absolutely, we can have a debate about every one of them. And on every one of them, what ideal hypothetical policy and what would actually come through the ringer of the government trying to pass something. And then what would come through the next ringer of actually trying to implement something those are those are much harder and 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 invite I think a lot of skepticism about government's capacity to to solve things. Um, where I where I think that we can make some progress though is 
again, not, I think as you described, sort of removing biases is exactly right. Um, but then there are a lot of sort of systems, in a sense, in our society that government does play a role in that we're going to have to have policy for. I mean, an example I always like to talk about is welfare reform. Like, you can have debates all you want about welfare reform, but I don't think there are a lot of conservatives out there who would say we shouldn't have done welfare reform because government never gets anything right and it wasn't going to come out <laughs> exactly right. And it's going to, you know, it's going to require some new programs and we're going to ask states to do stuff. And so let's like, let's just not talk about it. Conservatives might have said the first best answer was just to get rid of, of AFDC altogether. But at the end of the day, the view was there was a lot of worthwhile progress to be made by talking about what could a TANF program look like that would be better than the old AFDC. And so I think it's, it's constructive and frankly important to have people in every conversation always saying like, okay, but that's not how it's actually going to work. It's, you're you're going to get unintended consequences. All of that's true, but none of that's an argument, argument for, therefore, let's not do anything. Um, and so in a lot of these areas, I think, you know, education is a perfect one. We're going to have an education system. We're going to spend a lot of money on education in this country. So, gosh, let's try to do it better than we're doing now. And I think there's a lot of room there. And then I think the one place where, and, and I guess, you know, in a sense, this is why we've talked about it a lot. And we've talked about the trade side of it more than, than the immigration side of it. But, but on both trade and immigration... Um, there, there is an option to do nothing. I mean, you could just say we're going to have open borders and unconstrained trade. Um, but, but then you look at that and you say, but, but that's not quite right because in an international system, there are a whole bunch of other actors out there and you can almost think of it as a foreign policy question more than an economic policy question if you want. But there are an awful lot of other actors out there. There are an awful lot of, of, things exogenous to our own economy that could influence it. And we don't have any choice except to figure out what our policy response should be. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thing I always kind of emphasize is like, you can have completely free trade or you can have a completely free market, but you, you can't actually have both because your completely free trade welcomes very different distortive policies into your market. And so it can't just be a question of taking everything you like and adding the word free in front of it. We're going to, we're going to have to, and, and again, if all you care about is cheap stuff for consumers, you could. But if, if we have those other values and concerns that we think we need to attend to, it's just harder than we've treated it as. And we have to, and especially conservatives have to bring a willingness to engage in that, bring their skepticism of government action but also at the end of the day have something to say about it besides we don't have to do anything. Yeah. Um, on trade and immigration, those both deserve in-depth nuanced conversations yeah. of themselves because, and even, even combining the two, I, I think what you do in your book is a really honest assessment of saying, of relating the two, how uh, trade is often very similar, or if not economically equivalent, to importing labor and having that discussion. Um, but on trade, I look I look at the two differently, trade and immigration, because immigration brings so much more than just an economic angle. You, have, you bring in cultural yes. elements and just so many different things. And then on trade, um, 
I agree with your assessment, but we need to be careful how trade policies are implemented because you quickly get into just strip protectionism, cronyism, yes, and all absolutely. other sorts of things, well, and and that that becomes a problem. Well, historically, right, trade was all about tariffs. Okay, and where where do you where do you set the tariffs, and ultimately, what are you trying to do? At least since the eighteen teens, what are you trying to do? for your domestic industries? Are you trying to support your domestic industries or are you not trying to support your domestic industries? The reality is, is that we've never really had free trade, right? The United States has never had free trade. Britain's never had free trade, right? France and Britain did not have free trade in the 19th century, right? I mean, and, and over time, the trade debate has become less about tariffs and what you're trying to do or not do within regards to domestic industries and more about these non-trade barriers, right? What, what kinds of social policy are you trying to promote through the trade agreements? What kinds of environmental policy are you trying to promote through trade agreements and, and, and so on. And that has its own, you know, level of market distorting effects that I think we're just now starting to, to, to realize, right. To, to, to understand in part, because this is sort of a new phenomenon and by new, I mean, last 30 years or so. And when you're talking about tariff levels that are so low is what we're talking about. Now you almost get wrapped around the axle on a 3% tariff when, you know, these non uh, trade barriers are what really matters. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and you know, the non tariff barrier point is really important and to your point, Jack, about sort of the the messy political economy of it, you know, one thing I say is tariffs aren't the right way to approach this for exactly this reason. Tariffs are the thing that that most invite industry capture are going to, you know, the political economy of them are going to bring them most away from what an economist on his blackboard might draw corrects a problem. And by the way, they're the easiest thing for the other side to countervail, right? If 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 China doesn't like a tariff, first of all, they can retaliate with their own tariff. Second of all, they can just put a countervailing subsidy that compensates their producers for the cost of the tariff. And then, of course, the tariff in a lot of cases, a lot of it, the burden of it lands back on us. And so uh, this is a perfect example where we can agree that that these things we've been talking about matter, that we have to have a more nuanced view of it and and think about what is good policy. That by no means leads to, well, therefore, we should have big tariffs. It, it leads to, well, okay, let's have a discussion about, first and foremost, what can we do to make ourselves more competitive? How can we make the U.S. a place where people want to make these investments and build things? Um, and then, secondly, if we feel like behaviors from other countries are really counterproductive and, and unfair, much more in a foreign policy sense, well, what leverage do we have over them? And tariffs isn't really the right leverage to use. We should be more creative than that. I agree 100%. We should have started there. Um, I, I totally agree with you. I know we've been talking for a while. I have something I need to ask you. All right. Um, you talk about the need for more investment. We don't save enough. Um, we put too much focus on consumption. What do you think of a consumption tax abolishing the income tax for America's middle class and having a, what is essentially a consumption tax where, um, say like a big, uh, uh, a big savings account that um, you can save and invest in and you don't get taxed until after the fact or um, your savings and investments aren't taxed. They're only taxed one time. So another way to think about this is in the tax reform 2.0 plan that uh, moved last year 
in the house uh, written by Kevin Brady and had a universal savings account. Uh, now, the universal savings account was capped at $2,500 a year, uh, but ultimately it functioned like an IRA for stuff more than just retirement. And that's kind of what you're talking about here. Essentially, expanding a universal savings account type option, but also means testing it for the middle class. Yeah, so I would distinguish a little bit what what you guys just described. I think conceptually, this idea is a very important and powerful one, both that we tax income, which is the thing that we want, and we don't tax consumption, which is the thing that would seem more sensible to tax. Um, you know, one thing is just, again, in political economy terms, the idea of saying to Congress, hey, why don't you guys restructure our tax system as a, as a consumption taxes? would be the start of a very interesting process. I, you know, the, the transition and so forth, it would be worth it for 500 years of prosperity, but, but we certainly shouldn't minimize the... Well, but think about it like this. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, or just take the, take the Bush administration, right? You know, the, the, and, you know I, I don't want to get into, you know, business, business adjustment taxes with Jack at this moment, but, you know, nobody was talking about a bat, mm-hmm. right? Um, nobody was talking about universal savings accounts, at least not on the level that they're being talked about today. So a lot could happen in 10 or 15 years. Right. No, that's very true. And so so the one more thing to say about sort of a, conceptually a consumption tax is that it, it's extremely regressive. I mean, the the what I see as the primary advantage of an income tax is that you can calibrate it to what, in a sense, people can afford to pay. Um, and that you know the the flip side of these labor market concerns we've been talking about is at the end of the day we want the 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 workers to be able to support their families and their communities and so having a progressivity in the tax code i think is actually very important if you just flip to a straight consumption tax now relative to income by far the heaviest burden is landing on the lowest income households i mean you're essentially saying let's just dramatically raise the prices of everything now you can then start to address that by, well, we can exempt a bunch of stuff, which has its own set of political economy concerns. You could address it by saying, well, we're going to you know, mail big rebate checks to everybody at the bottom, which starts to feel like you're creeping into basic income territory. Um, and so I think, you know, it's very funny. I'm now responding to, <laughs> to your policy idea, much as you fairly respond to a lot of mine, which is to say, like, it sounds great in theory, but gosh, is it messy. Um, uh, for me, the, 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 the ability to, to implement the tax code progressively, I think, is just is something we, we have to maintain. I think what Paul described is sort of taking the intuition of a consumption tax, but applying it within the, the context of a progressive tax code with something like a savings account that's, that's tax-free um, is, is a really interesting middle ground. And this is actually, you know, the one thing I mentioned in my in my book is like, well, if I had to pick a metric besides GDP to start focusing on, it would be the savings rate because the capacity of households to save is both an indicator that they're self-sufficient and not relying on transfers and further an indication that they're actually building their own capital equity in their communities forward, you know, forward planning and, and, and all of those things that, that we want. So figuring out how to get the savings rate up for the typical household, partly by having a labor market that's going to get them to the income level where they could save. Um, but then also by looking at, you know, how can we sort of actively encourage it? Um, I think is, is, a, is, is exactly in keeping with, with, with the priorities that I would have. 
at the end of the day, the one the one concern I would have with something like a savings account is again that it goes beyond just saying let's remove the biases to well let's uh, let's insert this new distortive bias to try to encourage this particular behavior. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, particularly given how low the tax rate is for the bottom half of the income distribution, um, in in essence, anything they save is almost tax-free. And so I worry that creating a saving tax account like this really becomes more of sort of a middle to upper middle class mm-hmm. benefit. And I think focusing more on the labor market side of how do you get incomes up to a point where people can save anything and how do you make a cultural shift so that savings is valued is would be at the top of my well, list. I mean, I think that what, what, what I am looking at or what I think is interesting is if you have a fairly high cap, I think 250000 or 500000 that is a perhaps middle, upper middle class income sort of, of cap to be sure. But if you're not double taxing investment anymore, now you have more investment uh, uh, being put into the system. You have economic growth being put into the system, and then hopefully that flows through to have more uh, more jobs for people throughout the the income ladder into the system. Yeah. So I think that's one of the interesting things about the idea is that it's not a straight consumption tax, but it is kind of like. A consumption tax in that um, the money that you're saving and investing goes in one pot and everything left over gets subject to your normal income tax. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I mean, even up to, I think last I looked, even up to sort of 60 or 70K in household income for a family, your effective federal income tax rate is like certainly low single digits. And so what you're essentially proposing then is a very large tax cut to people in the 75K to 250K or 500K range um, in, in principle to induce more who, people who can already save on their own if they want, in principle to induce more investment. But as we've said, interest rates are very low. There's no lack of capital available to anyone who would be willing to, to do something with it. Um, and at a point where we have a trillion dollar budget deficit. So... I guess I'd come out against this one for those reasons, not because I don't like saving, but because it feels like it's targeted at the wrong group, not likely to generate a lot of supply side effect given how much, given how low interest rates are anyway, uh, and not something we can afford right now. So we end every episode with a two-part question. And Uh the first part of the question, I think you've already answered, so we can give you a pass on this if you want. Uh, But if there's something that you want to talk about, then... Then, then have at it. But the two-part question is this. Uh, what are the biggest problems that public policy can do something about and that public policy can't do something about? So those are the two parts. Those are the two parts. All right. Uh, the biggest problem I think we can do something about is, um, is connecting less educated workers to the productive workforce early on with valuable skills. Um, Partly I say that because the rest of the world already does it. I mean, the U.S. is such a crazy outlier in our insistence on trying to push people through college and not having anything for the rest of the population. Uh, So I think it's a huge problem and one that, again, we're going to be doing education policy. We could focus it where it needs to be focused and do better. Um, Something something we can't do a whole lot about uh, at – well, gosh, there are a lot of things we can't do a whole lot directly about. Um, I think, you know – family directly is is not something we can do a whole lot about. I don't think 
we can just do sort of, quote, pro-marriage policy that's going to, you know, teach people to get married, for instance, or to stay married. Um, and so I think we, to the extent we really care about those things, and I think we should, we have to be attendant to the underlying social conditions and economic conditions and make sure our policies are at least making things easier instead of harder. Uh, and then use, you know, use the bully pulpit and recognize that these are things worth talking about, their values worth emphasizing, uh, and, and they're things we should hold the rest of the culture carriers on, in society accountable for, uh, for providing good messages on too. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I feel like we could go on for hours. Um, but, uh, thanks for coming in, Oren. This was really great. Thank you so much. Oren, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher so that others can find us and look for a new episode every couple of weeks.